I'm Claire. And I'm Tony. And this is PodMed Trending. So today is a really exciting day for us, Tony. Yes, I've heard. We, for the very first time, can I get a drum roll? We have a guest! Ah! <laughs> we've, we've reached that level of you know, notoriety and uh-huh. uh, fame, I would yes. say, that we deserve a guest. <laughs> Absolutely. To totally give the plot away, the article that I will be covering today is called Development of R7BP Inhibitors Through Cross-Linking Coupled Mass Spectrometry and Integrated Modeling by Myoblab. <laughs> wow. Wow. Claim to fame right here. Yeah. So uh, first author, um, a former postdoc in the lab, uh, Pony Adigaram. So Adigaram et al. published in Communications Biology in 2019. So that's Nature Communications Little Sibling. And so the guest we have on today is my friend and former lab mate, Nicole, who is also co-author on Exciting. this paper. Now you might be wondering, okay, we know Claire's a narcissist, so <laughs> is she just picking this article because she was a co-author and did it really get on PubMed trending? Audiences want to know. The answer is yes, it was. It was... <laughs> It was number one on PubMed trending. Nice. Congrats. Thank you. Back in 2019. The heyday of scientific research. (laughs) Right before the big one. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely dug into the archives. It's obviously not on PubMed trending right now, but we will discuss more about that when Nicole is on. Yes. For now, let's get right into this article. Yes. This moment in history. Obviously, one therapeutic avenue for drug design and drug development is targeting protein-protein interactions. Sure. If proteins need to bind to each other, form a complex to have their function, that's something that could be targeted with a drug. But in order to target with any specificity versus just like throwing a bunch of compounds and seeing what happens, you need to know the structure. You need to know not just, oh, protein A and B are binding, but where are they binding? How are they binding? What residues are important? What's the structure? Right. Because structure underlies function. As I've heard before. <laughs> the classic, the gold standard way would to get the crystal structure. Mm-hmm. It's also not a very simple thing to do no. with individual proteins. So I would imagine with yes. protein complexes, yes. it could become even more like exponentially difficult. The protein complex, which I'll talk about a little later... It was very, we were, we tr- we've tried working with collaborators to crystallize it. It just doesn't want to crystallize for various chemistry reasons that I do not understand. Or maybe it's physics. I don't know. Um, What's the difference? <laughs> it's, it, it's expensive. It's, it's a long process. Right. Not very user-friendly. You need specialists and equipment and blah, 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 blah. So um, in the recent years, a lot of different things have come along to get more insight about the structure without necessarily having the full crystal structure. One of those being cryo-EM, which I feel like did that win? Not the Nobel Prize. Or did it? Another interesting adaptation to the field of structural biology is cross-linking mass spectrometry. Right. Or cross-linking mass spec. The idea is, so mass spectrometry, more chemistry that I won't get into, but it kind of breaks up the protein and gives you little fragments to to tell you what's there. Yeah. But if you add a cross-linker beforehand, it, as the name implies, the compound will cross-link different residues together. If they cross-link together on mass spec, then with the addition of the cross-linking compound, then you know, oh, they're close together. So this part of the protein must fold 
Gotcha. And be together. Makes sense. So what you do is you get your protein or your protein complex, and you add all these cross-linking compounds. Different ones have different lengths. Uh, one in this paper, cross-linked slicings. And you can see, oh, this, this peptide is cross-linked to this peptide. Gotcha. So, and if you know the amino acid sequence, mm-hmm. you could know how those yes. things might be related to each other. Yes. Yeah. So we're using that in combination with everyone's favorite, computational modeling. Oh, great. <laughs> so... Another leap forward in figuring out uh, structure and interactions is basically using complex math stuff on the computer to make educated guesses. Um, (laughs) Science that everyone loves, you know, just your educated guessing. By a computer. (laughs) By a computer. So an educated guess by a machine. Yes. Anyone who does AI, machine learning, computational, whatnot, will tell you is that they can be good, but, you know, they can be bad also. Right. So what the authors did, what we did, was combine computational predictions with the data for the from the cross-linking mass spec gotcha. to get an idea of what our protein looked like. And, and what came first? Did you do the prediction on the computational modeling first, or did you take data collected from the cross-linking mass spec experiments and then funnel that into the, oh no, is your face is saying you don't know <laughs> which came first. I think we did them in parallel. Let's get into the data. I'm going right. to give a little background on what we were looking at. Sure. So our protein of interest is R7BP. Okay. It is part of a complex of G protein subunits. I'm assuming it's a binding protein. Is that what the BP stands for? Well, jumping the gun here, but... (laughs) R7 binding protein, which... What is R7? It's the R7 RGS family of proteins. But stepping back a little bit, why do we care about G proteins? (laughs) Good question. (laughs) I proteins are intracellular second messengers. We have a ligand that binds to a G protein coupled receptor, GPCR. Which is where they get their name. (laughs) Yep. So the ligand binds to the GPCR. You have a whole... A series of signaling events <laughs> <laughs> that basically amplify your signal. The idea right. behind a second messenger is that you, instead of having one ligand that is going to go into the cell and activate one protein and do one thing, you have one that's bounding outside of the cell, and then G proteins can themselves activate many, many different right. intracellular proteins. Yeah. A little more into the weeds, normally, canonical G-protein signaling, you have your alpha, beta, and gamma subunit. Yes. So ligand binds, the alpha and the beta gamma dissociate. Right. And then they both act on downstream effectors. Yes. Signaling is shut off when the intrinsic GTPase activity on the G-alpha subunit will hydrolyze the GTP back to GDP, which is its inactive state. Right. And then they come back together. Yeah. In terms of, like, the world of biology, fairly simple. Fairly simple. Until you get into non-canonical G proteins. Yeah, we're not going to go there. Um, <laughs> oh no, are we, we going to yeah, go there? We, no. <laughs> oh. uh, I purposely, in my studies, avoided the non-canonical signaling pathways because I was like, nope, not dealing with that this year. Our lab is well, not in my lab anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pour one out. <laughs> yeah, we care about G beta five, which there's alpha, beta, gamma. There's five beta subunits. One, two, three, four, five. One through four, they their sequence is the same. It's very conserved. They're structurally the same. They're ubiquitously expressed like in every cell type. They're pretty indistinguishable from a biology perspective. Right. G beta five 
sequence is much less conserved. Okay. Structure is much more different. Interesting. And it's not ubiquitously expressed, unlike every other. So is it cell specific? It is. Okay. Primarily neural tissue, so neurons, glia, okay. and neuroendocrine cells like the beta islets, uh, adrenal glands, a few other neuroendocrine tissues. And it does not bind to a G gamma subunit. Interesting. So yeah. just the alpha and beta units? No. Oh, no. Rather, binds to an RGS or regulator of G protein signaling. Okay. So RGS protein from, bringing it full circle, from the R7 RGS subfamily. So that's okay. RGS 6, 7, 9, and 11. Okay. Now I'm so, seeing the connection. Yes. So RGS 7... I like to describe its structure as like a pair of earmuffs. It has an RGS domain, which of course it's an RGS protein. Of course, it's going to have an RGS domain on one side. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> and then on the other side, it has a depth-dex domain, okay. which we'll get into more. And then uh, connecting those two puffs of the earmuff is a G-gamma-like or giggle domain. Tony's giggling. <laughs> I try not to. It's just sometimes the the... The naming and the nomenclature for some of these stuff is just like absolutely stupid and nonsensical. And then sometimes they're just perfect. <laughs> yes. So this giggle domain is structurally and sequence very similar to a gamma. Okay. G gamma. But it lines this R7 RGS. So the de- dex domain helps its association with membrane anchor proteins, including R7BP. Okay. So bringing it back. So... We have our non-canonical G-protein subunits. Right. So we have our alpha, not our beta-gamma, but our beta-RGS, that obviously the G-protein-coupled receptors are on the cell membrane. And so we have R7-BP, which is the main interactor with the uh, RGS-7, which is binding with the beta-5. Right. It's palmitylated, so it's membrane-bound. And so the idea is that it kind of brings the brings the RGS-7 beta-5 complex to the cell membrane where it can act. Okay. Because it also has other non-canonical functions. Like oh in the my nucleus. god. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of background. But why, why do we care? Mutations in the GNB5 gene, which encodes for G-beta-5, cause a rare neurodevelopmental syndrome called intellectual developmental disability with cardiac arrhythmia or IDDCA. But, like, the severity by which these little kids have heart problems, they have, like, six sinus syndrome, which you see oh, usually, like, 90-year-old oh, wow, yeah. people. R7BP is not beta-5, obviously. So why do we care specifically looking at that interaction, not just beta-5? Well, in a previous paper from our lab, we demonstrated that it is important in the regulation of itch sensation. Basically, if you don't have R7BP in a mouse model... They are altogether normal, no neurological deficits. Because we also characterize the GNB5 knockout mouse. Right. I mean, just a classic failure to thrive, neurodevelopmental, kind of any assessment you did on those mice. It was just bad. It was bad. Okay. And R7BP, it's like, well, it brings beta 5 to where it needs to go. It's got to have something. They're, they're altogether normal mice. Okay. Through a series of serendipitous events, we found that they do regulate itch sensation. Okay. So that was... Sorry, go ahead. I I was just going to say, like, the... So basically, those mice that have the uh, R7BP uh, mutation, Mm -hmm. they were no longer able to 
respond to an itch sensation or they no longer were able to stop having an itch sensation uh the former okay so they you inject them with peritogens in their skin right cause basically an itchy substance that like such as uh histamine right and a normal mouse will then scratch themselves like they're itchy but the rcmvp mice do not have and this is both in per- the peripheral nervous system, and then when you do central uh, peritogens, like gastrin-releasing peptide. Right. They Nothing? They, nothing. Oh, interesting. It's a central regulator of itch sensation, which is huge because, I mean, I don't need to tell you, sensation is very complicated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and, and kind of, ideally, the higher up you can go to regulate it, you... The better you're, your you're, treatment you're, would be. Exactly. Because yeah. you're hitting multiple different modalities at once. Exactly. So that makes R7BP a great candidate for targeting treatment of excessive itch because the the mouse model altogether normal. So, like, why wouldn't that be a good target? Yeah. So, and if the whole mouse model is normal, mm-hmm. even with a total knockout yep. of this protein, yep, then knockout. you could do like a, a systemic treatment yep. for like someone who might have like itchy like itchiness as an allergic reaction symptom. Yes. So like me with maybe. <laughs> that would be my cat. <laughs> but you might ask why I look at itch like that doesn't seem too severe. But it's actually, I mean, just think when you get a mosquito bite, how annoying that is. Yeah. How distracting it is. And some people due to chronic liver injury, um, other like chronic diseases, they have systemic itch all the time yeah. and you might think of more of annoyance than a kind of a detrimental effect but if you're always itchy all over all the time yeah it's it's really bad and it's, yeah it's a quality of life thing and then on top of that also if you just think from like a pharmaceutical standpoint yeah. like antihistamines and yeah. other like allergen medications mm-hmm. like that's a huge industry and to be able to circumvent a lot of those potential side effects yes. like drowsiness yes. which sucks like that's a huge get. That's a huge advancement in the treatment of these symptoms. Yes. So that's why we're looking at R7BP. Now let's look at R7BP. Sounds like a plan. Okay. So cross-linking mass spec. What we did was we kind of did it in parallel with ITAS. So let me talk about our workflow on the computational side. First, we use ITASER, okay. which is just kind of like AlphaFold, it just models. Okay. And then once we had our model, we use ClusPro, which is, I think, short for clustering pro. So it docks. So we'll take the two proteins and, like, find a way to, like, mm, we think they go together. Put them together. Way. Yeah. And then we use CHARM, which stands for, I don't know why I said it, but, like, I remember. Uh, I think it's chemistry at Harvard Macromolecular something. Of course it is. Yes. So that's a program that does kind of more fine-tuning relaxation um, predictions. So when okay. you do things like ClusPro and... Um, ITASER is just gonna like. It's, literally, it's like putting two Lego blocks together. Yes. It's like yes. they're not, there's no flexibility. Right. In it. But and proteins are naturally flexible. Yes, exactly. And so they might just kind of like smash together two proteins that co- in a way that causes a lot of steric hindrance. Right. So it's a relaxation protocol that we used in Charm to kind of model like okay we think they roughly go together like this but kind of like what grooves and like <laughs> rolls and ridges and <laughs> might exist at the binding site you know yeah really get that uh fine tune binding makes sense so we did that i mean i didn't do i didn't do any of the like wet lab work my contribution was solely on the modeling side 
(laughs) (laughs) That does not translate well for a podcast. No. (laughs) Um, Also, what a change from what you do now. (laughs) I, well, this, this is a side project for me. (laughs) (laughs) So let me get into the data. So, okay. We did it with DSSO. That's like, I think, 10 angstroms apart. So okay. we did this. Um, we didn't do, we sent it to a proteomics core. So they did the mass spec for us. We got back. We looked at it. And basically, so we did the modeling. We got our model. And oh, and first, there is a crystal structure of G beta 5 with RGS9. Okay. So to kind of prove our workflow for the modeling, we told iTaser to model RGS9 and beta 5. Which have known structures. Known structures. And then we docked them with Clospro, relaxed them with Charm, and got a, a good, pretty much... Predictive model. Predictive model. Makes so, sense. So we did it with R7BP. Okay. And then we got our info from the cross-linking mass spec. And then we were able to say, like, okay, so the model is okay, but now we know that these two parts of the protein have to be close together. So you can put in distance restraints in ITASR and in CLUSPRO. It's like if you Makes know sense. that these two things have to interact like similar together, you can kind of, you're just giving more information to the machine to make a better guess. Right. So that's kind of where they came together is we, we used the data in from the cross-linking mass spec to get a better model. Gotcha. So we made the model. But then, like, okay, like we have our model, like what's the purpose? Well, back to the whole like beginning protein-protein interactions and needing the structure to model any disruptions we can make with a pharmaceutical. So we did that. Okay. So the idea was that we wanted to disrupt the uh, RGS7, beta-5, and R7BP interaction. Right. And we did that with llama antibodies. Basically, we... We raised llama antibodies against R7BP. And so we're like, can we disrupt this interaction with antibodies? We tested it with SPR or surface plasmon resonance. That, again, more physics that I will not get into. Thank God. <laughs> but basically, like, you, it, it's, it's, it measures interaction, strength, whatnot. So basically, you have like a chip, and then you bind one partner, binding partner to the chip. And then you flow the other binding partner over, and then you shine a light through. And basically, if it binds, it changes the uh, refraction or whatever yeah. or something. The SPR machine, we had it had a very nice white noise kind of whir as it was working. Nice. Um, Some whale scenes. noises. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> we found certain epitopes that based on our structure, it's like, oh, this would be a good one to block that could potentially block. Right. And we found that, that we could do that. Nice. In conclusion, we created a method that used in silico computer modeling and cross-linking mass spec, which all in all, I mean, the, the modeling was like, it's like a lot of computer stuff. So if you're not into that, like that's hard. All in all, I mean, compared to cryo-EM or crystal structure, like yeah. it's, it's a relatively it's more accessible, yeah. yeah. Both Clospro and ITASR have a graphical user interface or GUI, so you didn't have to do any coding. Char- oh, thank God. Did. Oh, well. Mm. But um, that was rough. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So kind of relatively fast and accessible way to get structural information that's actually pertinent for protein-protein interactions. So that was one conclusion. And then also like, hey, we've got maybe a potential way to modulate 
this interaction, which could be a really, really nice therapy for acute and chronic itch patients. Nice. That is the conclusion. I mean, I normally we have more discussion, but we yeah, have well, our distinguished Well, one guest. question before yes, okay. we bring on Nicole, just yes. because I feel like if I don't ask this, because we're talking about protein-protein binding here, I feel like if I don't ask this, everyone that's like in the Ruse lab would get mad at us. Oh, no. Did you guys do bio-ID on, <laughs> on your protein of interest? We did not do bio-ID because we know what it you is. You knew what it was. Yeah. 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 We but were, we, did you look at it to make maybe like look at potential like non-canonical binding that you might be able to identify? We haven't done it. We knew that's what we wanted to target. Makes sense. So like, we, no need to go, go fishing, fishing for something yeah, exactly, you already exactly. knew the answer to. Yeah. Before we bring Nicole on, I'm going to introduce her like we're at an academic talk. Sounds good. So next up... We have Nicole Liu. Nicole is originally from Norwalk, Connecticut, and went to undergrad at Colgate University, where she majored in neuroscience and minored in religion. She graduated in 2018. After graduation, she did a post-baccalaureate fellowship at the National Institutes of Health in the National Institute of Diabetes, Digestive, and Kidney Diseases in the lab of Bill Simons where we slash they study, <laughs> you guessed it, G-protein signaling. <laughs> no. And parathyroid cancer. Yeah. <laughs> After completion of her post-baccalaureate fellowship, she uh, started medical school at Emory. Where nice. Where she is currently a medical student in class of 2023. Cool. Congrats to her. So let's bring on Nicole. All right. We officially have Nicole on. So welcome, Nicole, to PodMed Trending. Thanks for having me, you guys. I'm truly honored to be here. And you're our first ever guest, so this is very exciting. And it's my first ever podcast, so here <laughs> we are. Yeah, a longtime listener, first time guest, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, yes, totally. Excellent. We'd love to see it. This podcast is all about trending articles on PubMed Trending. I remember even before this article was published, kind of tuning into like, the weekly happenings of PubMed trending. And it was so, so exciting to like finally see our article as number one. I don't remember. I don't know what you remember about it. I, yes, I remember seeing it and just not feeling like it was real. Um, Also, I feel like I really, I wasn't a main author on this paper, I will say. So I just was feeling a lot of pride for my fellow lab mates. And I think it was in September of 2019, like early September. So I feel like we're right approaching the three-year anniversary of when it was trending. That's true. Yeah. Wow. It feels so long ago. And we were both starting med school at that time. Because I didn't just like open PubMed and there it was on the, on the number one. I feel like I saw that it was because I was scrolling through PubMed trending like I normally do. And I saw <laughs> it was kind of like rising and it, first I was on there and I was like, oh my God. And then I saw it was going up and up. So I kept like checking. And then I feel like I remember I was like in the middle, I was doing a lab rotation and I got a text um, from uh, Corny, who's the first author. And she was like, we're number one on Pop. On <laughs> I, was like, no. I was like, oh my God. And like I ran to my computer and I think I texted you. I was like, oh my gosh, I like made it. <laughs> yeah. I remember getting a screenshot from you for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely have that saved on my computer. I was like, this isn't going to last. It does. I'm looking now. It has like 
2,600 accesses. They're really interested in protein-protein interaction. I mean, how could you not be? Yeah, I know. What a hot topic. It's fascinating. When papers go on trending, they're usually, they take time to work their way to the top number one, and then they sit there for a while, and then they work their way down to two, and then five, you know, like, but ours, like, went way up to number one right when it was published and then, like, absolutely crashed. But, like, the next day, I don't even know if it was in the top ten. <laughs> we don't need to talk about that. Right. We'll just focus yeah, on no one cares how long you see it, number one. It's just if you made it there. You know what I mean? Yeah, so I'll, I'll really hang my hat on that. Yeah. yeah. All right, so I'll just jump in here with some questions. Uh, Claire already kind of talked about how she focused the computational work in the paper. Would you mind going over kind of like your contributions to it as well? Sure. I was just talking to Claire about this and <laughs> was like, what did I do on this paper? Like, what? I can't believe I'm an author on this paper, to be honest. So as I was, I feel like my main contribution was like manuscripts, um, like helping with the manuscript and reading it and editing and et cetera. And also just like participating in lab meetings as we went. I mean, this paper was like, such a saga the these experiments i don't know if claire talked about any of this in the previous part but porny would come to lab meetings every day and would be like it didn't work like the two the like antibody things didn't work the i can't figure out what this structure is like it worked yesterday now it's not working today so i think a lot of it my at least in my opinion for me was sort of like helping with troubleshooting as well and just like suggesting ideas in terms of tweaking the assays and trying to make things work. Claire was really the like main person in terms of the computational work. We sat across from each other in the lab and she would always be like, oh, I hate this program. Like, I, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I can't help you because I am over here doing histology. Uh, <laughs> and then... It's not directly related to this to this paper, but Claire and I spent a lot of time um, with the R7BP knockout mice, which are mentioned in the introduction. Mm-hmm. And though we would just watch those mice, we would and count how many times they itch themselves in like, a <laughs> thirty-minute period. That's so glamorous. So a lot of our friendship is built on that um, that <laughs> bonding time we had together with those mice. Well, the uh, the glamorous life of an NIH, NIH researcher, it seems. I, I was telling yeah. Tony yeah. that every Monday, we when we do itch phenotyping, we'd like discuss the previous Sunday's Game of Thrones episode. It was like a, the, mm-hmm. the Monday itch ritual. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Me, Claire, and Pandy, who was like oversaw us, we, we would really get into it with the Game of Thrones. And we would come up with some creative games in addition to that when it wasn't Monday. I feel like yes. one time we were like, what do we think like the most populous cities are? And then we talk about it for 30 minutes and then look it up after. You could not take your eyes off these mice scratching themselves for one second because you might miss a, a scratching episode. Oh, no. <laughs> but sometimes, but you know, the, the, the knockouts yeah. they would not be itching themselves. But you'd have to make well, sure. Exactly. Oh, so. God, that sounds awful. Whatever it takes for a publication, right? <laughs> truly. It's truly a publisher parish world. Yeah. So, Nicole, you mentioned briefly that, like, this whole kind of, like, publication and, like, research process was, like, really a long, a long time and kind of a saga, especially for the, the lead author on the paper. Would you mind talking about maybe some of the, like, the experiments that went into it that 
either were failures or that you wanted to include in the paper, but that wouldn't like actually make it into the publication and like how those kind of things actually came about? That is a good question. Thank um, you. <laughs> I, <laughs> you're, um, you're hitting me with the hard ones. Cause like I said, I wasn't really in the, the day-to-day um, experiments. Right. But I, if, if I can remember the protein purification was like a tough part of this. Is that right, Claire? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, I feel like um, because in order to do the SPR experiments, you had to have just your protein, like you couldn't have any other proteins, right? obviously. So you couldn't just do like a protein lysate, you had to do like a... So, honest to God, I've never seen so much like column chromatography in my life. (laughs) Like, yeah, and it wasn't just... It was like five steps. You had to do a his tag, and then there was like an ion exchange, and then like a buffer exchange, like so many different like. Oh no! And looking at, I don't know if you've like looked at like the like the column chromatography like peaks and like oh is the yeah. peak symmetrical? Is the peak not symmetrical? When I first started working in the lab, I, I remember like this is like a Rorschach test. Like I have no idea <laughs> what's going on. And by the end, I had looked at so many. I was like, oh my gosh, like that's such an asymmetrical peak. It must be. <laughs> Yeah, because it was like we couldn't really even move forward with any of the rest of the experiments without having that protein purification. And sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't, and it was just constant saga. And then the Claire mentioned the SPR. Now I'm having all these flashbacks. That was a whole saga in itself because we had that was like a new device in the lab. So I feel like we were constantly trying to figure out, you know, what how that worked and why it wasn't working and calling the person that had sold it to us to try to figure out like what was going on in terms of your question about things that were not included um nothing is like coming to my mind immediately I think like the hope for this paper was to then like potentially develop an inhibitor based on the protein structure so that's like the next steps but we when we published this paper we weren't close to having that yeah makes sense yeah i can't really think of any other questions that i might have claire did a a pretty good job beforehand running through some extensive background and like review of the paper i guess it was like Claire's the real star of this paper. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, like someone who led the computational work right here in my own house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she she totally killed it. Um, I remember watching her and being like, I have no idea what you're doing. Like, I'm just going to sit at the cryostat and cut my brain tissue. And <laughs> I don't know. Stuff. I knew what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 we don't say that. <laughs> well, you you, you knew what you were doing. I think you went through some trials. trials Certainly. Trials. I think there was, there was a part where I was, like, stuck for two weeks because I had an extra, like, comma in my, like, charm <laughs> script. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is embarrassing. Oh, gosh. Having some bad flashbacks myself about trying to use, like, Studio to get any work done. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I was, when I was reading this paper, I had a flashback to my first day in the lab. Um, which would have been in 2017. And I remember um, Jianhua, who was the our lab manager, he like brought over this giant, I don't remember what it was in. It was like a giant flask of the llama serum with the antibodies. <laughs> and he was like, okay, 
I need you to like pipette this into a hundred milliliter tubes. <laughs> and I was like, Truly okay. amazing. Yeah. And then I was reading this paper and I was like, oh, the llama antibodies, like I pipetted that into 100 milliliter tubes. Oh. So, <laughs> well, that sounds awful. Yeah. You know, someone's got to do it. Truly. One thing that I think is a cool aspect about this paper that like you wouldn't know if you didn't have a few of the co-authors on the podcast. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, was that other co-authors are the people who did the mass spec data, which were the NHLBI, Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, right. Proteomics Core. Now, you might be like, we were in the NID, NIDDK. Why did we use the NHLBI? Because they were across the hall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Convenient. I don't know, Nicole, if you remember. That. I can't remember his name, but there's that one guy who I would see, like, every day. And he was always wearing, like, business yeah, I remember. And, and he always had his like coffee and like the white mug, mm-hmm. and and every day like for three years, just a head nod every day. And I don't know his name, but he he was in the proteomics core. And I think one day someone in our lab, they're just like the the NIDDK proteomics core was like in another building. Totally skipping to another funny lab memory. Um, since we were in the clinical center, we'd get all the time the alerts of like anytime there's a cold blue like someone needed to be resuscitated right so you kind of tune the up and not going to do anything about it nicole i don't know if you remember the one time we were headed back from endocrinology rounds and we hear there's code red code red which is fire alarm mm-hmm. and it's like what what's what's on fire and it was code red and 8c205 and we're like oh that's our lab yeah i remember that <laughs> Oh no! It was um, it was a gel box lid fell onto a hot plate. <laughs> a classic lab fire. Yeah, and I think it was actually like in Bill's side of the lab, like in that like where all the Drosophila were, you know, oh, the yeah. other room yeah. that like no one goes into. Mm. Anyway, what a what a time! Truly. Yep. Our I I don't really miss the days of the no window um, lab setup we had going on there. <laughs> You mean the one that we have now? <laughs> uh, I, it is unfortunate for me to say, Nicole, that uh, Tony and I are, are still in that boat. Um, oh, in so that sorry. Our lab space is a former warehouse. Yeah. Manufacturing a distribution plant, center. Distribution center. Yeah. So it's basically a big box. Yeah. And everyone's is in the middle of the box and there are no windows. <laughs> I think we were truly only like one step up from an Amazon warehouse situation because we're allowed to go to the bathroom whenever we want. So <laughs> the bathrooms are very far away from but like they are. Yeah. 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 Well, I'll no. say I had a great view from my desk too, which was directly at Claire. So. <laughs> <laughs> so many so many conversations where i'd be like hey nicole and then we'd like both like turn our heads to the side and like lean past our computers <laughs> <laughs> despite my limited um contributions to this paper in general i appreciate you guys having me on it was really fun and yeah thank and, uh, you for for joining us today yeah, of course good trip down memory lane absolutely yeah all right, all right. thanks nicole and good luck with the rest of school Thanks. Bye, guys. See ya.